do the shortened service. We're going to transition right to the message, which will be found in Mark 14, once again. And we'll be looking at the words in verses 1 through 11. So, please turn your Bibles to Mark 14 through 11. Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there may be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Please pray with me once again. Lord, we come to you, especially before we hear your word preached, seeking your grace. Because we know that apart from your work spirit, that that we could hear We could be hearers of your word and never change, just mere listeners. But we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be faithful. We want to be true. We want to be sincere. We want to be genuine in every aspect. And so I pray that you would use your word to show us where we need to repent. God, you know each one of our hearts. We don't don't even know the hearts of one another. In fact, we don't often know our own hearts. But you do. And so I pray that you would use your word to to, to shine the light of your word into our hearts that we might know how we need to repent. We might know how we need to grow. And also we might see your grace at work in us. That we might be encouraged to see that we are no longer in our trespasses and sins. But we have been born again. We do love you more than the things of this world. And I pray that you would also continue to inspire us to be more faithful to treasure you more, to live for you because you are worthy. I pray that you would show us all these things through your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as all of you know, uh, this last Monday we uh, celebrated Memorial Day. And uh, Memorial Day is, I think, a a great holiday um, because it's on that day we, we set aside 
our time and uh, in order to honor those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our nation in particular. And I think it's right to memorialize people for the great deeds and sacrifices that they do. In fact, this is something that, that, that nations have done throughout history. And, and they do so not just to honor those who have made these great sacrifices, but they, they do so as a, as a teaching tool. Because what you memorialize really tells to future generations, this is what we expect of you. It, it, it teaches what genuine virtue looks like. These are the people, these are the acts that are worth remembering. This is how you want to shape your life. This is what you want to be remembered for as a member of this nation. Consider what these famous memorial inscriptions are meant to teach. The memorial of the Battle of Marathon says, Fighting at the forefront of the Greeks, the Athenians at Marathon laid low the army of the gilded Medes. The inscription at Thermopylae says, O stranger, tell the Lacodemonians, that's the Spartans, that here we lie, obedient to their laws. And of course, the Marine Corps Memorial, uh, the famous one with the, the flag being raised on Iwo Jima says, Uncommon valor was a common virtue. Semper Fidelis. And, and the text before us really has a similar role. It's given to both honor this woman who made a great sacrifice in, in, in demonstrating Christ was her greatest treasure, but it's also meant to teach us something. It's, it, Mark has placed it in this passage, and, and in fact, alongside of uh, two other dark uh, descriptions of, of the religious leaders in Judas, to show us this is, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. It's meant to teach us virtue, to teach us how we should live and what we should value. And again, it does this by presenting three contrasting responses to Jesus. So there's the response of the religious leaders who use stealthy violence to get at Christ. But of course, the response of the woman and her act of sacrificial honor. And then the response of Jesus, Judas who seeks to stab Jesus in the back. And you'll recall that the argument that Mark is making in this gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this has been demonstrated from chapter 1 throughout as Jesus performed miracles and signs and in what he himself has taught to his disciples and the crowds, uh, what he's declared to the religious leaders as well. And but Mark's primary emphasis as he ex demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God is he emphasizes the response of people to these truths about Christ. And to how people respond to his teaching, how people respond to his signs. And as he's presented this evidence, he's emphasized really four different responses to Jesus. You have the religious leaders who have a conflict with Jesus over his authority. There are the uh, crowds who are drawn to his power, but they're repulsed by his words. The faithless disciples who follow him, but don't quite get it. And they, they, they vacillate. So they, they want to follow him, but then they fall away. And then there's the faithful few. And there's very few. 
And they tend to be the unexpected ones that Mark points out. Uh, the insignificant, the Gentiles, the, the demon-possessed. There's very few of those, and they are the ones who understand not just who Jesus is, but their great need for Christ. And they consistently follow him. And in these last two chapters of Mark, so from 14, 15, and 16, really the whole rest of Mark is just a bombardment of different responses. It's all responses to Jesus. It's like Mark is kind of, is, after showing us uh, Jesus' plan for the end and the major conflict with the religious leaders that we saw in the last section, Mark ends the gospel by just highlighting, this is how this person responded, this is how this person responded, this is how this person responded. Just notice this. So this is what we're going to be looking at in the, the weeks ahead. You have the, uh, the three that I mentioned today, and then there's the response of other disciples. In verses 26 to 52, and the response of religious leaders, then Peter, Pilate, the crowd, soldiers, the centurion, and then the, the gospel ends with the responses of the women at the, the tomb and the risen Lord. So, it's all responses. And so let's look at the, the, first of all, the response of the religious leaders and their response of stealth and violence. It says again, Now the Passover and leavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot among the people. And again, the religious leaders respond to Jesus by wanting to kill him because they see him as a threat. And this has been building from the very beginning of Mark's Gospels, from the, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And they don't like Jesus because he's a threat to their authority. They don't like being exposed as religious hypocrites. They don't like to be exposed as lovers of money rather than lovers of God, as those who are uh, twisters of the law rather than expositors of it. I mean, just think of the fact, again, these are experts in the law, the scribes, the lawyers of the time. And they're seeking to kill, to murder Christ, the sixth commandment. Blatant disobedience. But they're not going to do this openly because they're afraid of the people. Again, what they care about is their reputation. They don't, they don't care about God's law as much as being honored, being admired. They want people to see them in a certain way. They love the pride of life. And so it would do no good to get rid of Jesus if they were exposed as hypocrites in doing it, so they got to do it by stealth. And these men are not alone. I mean, throughout history, people have seen Jesus as a threat. And because they don't want somebody else to tell them how they want to how they should live their lives. They want to live their lives how they want to. They prefer to live under the delusion that they're autonomous and free. But the problem with this way of thinking is these people fail to realize that everyone is a slave of sin. We are born into this world slaves of sin. Jesus says in John 8.34, He who commits sin is a slave of sin. We're all slaves of sin. Because we are compelled to do what we want versus what God has clearly commanded us to do. And often, because we're slaves of sin, the only time we actually do seek to 
obey God is when it lines up with what we want. So they're already slaves to sin and their fleshly desires, but they would rather trust those fleshly, deceitful desires more than the words of Christ. They would rather trust their deceptive desires, which have never paid up. And the fact, I mean, just, just think about the fact that um, these desires have promised pleasure. If you just give in to this, you will be satisfied. If, if this is, it's, it's like trusting a casino. If you just pay me a little more money, eventually you'll get rich. Despite the fact that all you've, you've squandered 200 bucks on this slot machine, there's just this seeming hope that if I just give a little bit more, then it'll eventually satisfy. They'd rather trust that, these deceitful desires, than the, desire, than the, the words of God who is righteous and has never lied. It's like trusting a drug dealer. If, if, I'll give you just this, this ounce of meth for free. Or a politician who says, vote for me and I will decrease your taxes and give you more money. That's the way sin is. If you just believe me, you'll be satisfied. Even though he's never paid up. Sin is never paid up. Even if there's been a, a little bit of pleasure, it's always, there's always a wake of greater despair, greater shame, greater destruction. And we've all experienced it, and yet we continue to be deceived. Sin promises to satisfy. But it's a liar. As Isaiah described the delusion of all idolaters. In Isaiah 44, 20, he says, He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? We believe sin's promise to satisfy, even though every time we buy into it, it, it leaves us feeling ever more empty, like we've just drank a bottle of Drano. But the religious leaders are convinced that sin is not the real threat to their souls, but Jesus. I mean, despite, again, their expertise in the law, they're deliberately disobeying God's law to try and bring him to death. But they're waiting for the opportune time. And this is contrasted with the response of the woman. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, says that this, this woman is actually Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she is memorialized here for a sacrificial act of honor to Christ. Uh, for those who are interested, if you compare John's account... Um, and this account, in John's account, this takes place six days before the Passover. Here it seems appears to be two days before. Well, what's going on there is this did happen six days before the Passover, as John records it. He's being chronological. Mark has actually taken this account and inserted it between uh, a lot to, to put it alongside Judas and the religious leaders' decision to betray Jesus. So Mark has moved this to, to draw out the contrast. So he's, in a sense, going back in time to show her response to Christ 
as her treasure versus how the uh, religious leaders in Judah, Judas view Jesus. And again, we're told that she, she poured a vial of very costly perfume over him. Pure nard, it says. Uh, this nard was a... Uh, an ointment that could be that was actually really expensive, was well known to the Greeks and the Romans. It was actually found in India along the, the hills of the banks of the Ganges River. Uh, it was very costly, as it says here. It was pure, that is undiluted. Again, it's, it was costly. The, the disciples said, declared themselves it was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was a, a full day's wage. So this is akin to a whole year's salary. So just imagine whatever your yearly salary is, spending that much money in an instant. Gone. Giving it away. Or using it up in some way. Mary had this expensive perfume and she used it the best way she could by pouring it on her beloved's head. And again, this is, a, this is a, an act of worship. It was an expression of love. It showed that she valued Christ more than everything on earth. And it maybe took the most valuable thing she owned and sacrificed it as an act to ornament her Lord. She, I mean, again, she, she loved Jesus with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, all her strength. And this was just one simple way to show it. She was a great, he was a greater treasure to her than anything. As Jesus says, she did what she could to honor him. It's, a, it's reminiscent of the widow um, that we saw a couple chapters earlier who gave the two copper coins all she had to live on. Vastly different amounts of money. One's a year's wage, worth a year's wage. One is just two copper coins, a couple bucks maybe. And yet, Jesus exclaims that they're both worthy of great honor because of the heart that's behind them. But as the disciples witness this act of sacrificial love, they're indignant, it says. They're angry. Uh, the word actually speaks of a flaring of the nostrils. And it's, again, just another sign of the disciples' failure to understand who Jesus really is and what Jesus has come to do, His precious purpose. See, again, the disciples, to some extent, still, still see Jesus as a means to an end. In following Jesus, they expect that things are going to get better for them. They fully expect this. They, they don't really get the fact that Jesus has come to die on account of their sin. But Mary gets it. Our greatest need is spiritual. It's not, it's not physical. It's not judicial. It's not monetary. It's not political. Our greatest need is spiritual. Mary and a few others have understood this. But even the disciples fail to understand. Completely. And Mary demonstrates her understanding of the value of Christ by sacrificing what is costly. I mean, you can imagine that at some point, probably, this alabaster jar of pure nard meant a lot to Mary. That, I, I, I'd imagine she 
kept it in a special place in the house, maybe locked up. It was one of those things that maybe could be looked at, but the children were not allowed to touch. It was kept safe, maybe hidden. But to Mary, the value of the jar had quickly diminished as she understood the value of Christ. And it was still valuable. Maybe it grew in value every day, possibly. But the disciples recognized that to Mary, its value paled in comparison to Christ. She understood what Paul understood. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, when someone comes to know Christ, truly know Christ, everything else pales in comparison. It's not that those things don't matter anymore, but they just pale in comparison. Their, their needs, what they used to think of as their needs or what really mattered in life just diminishes in value. And so we, don't, we, don't, we realize we don't need more comfort if we got Christ. We don't need more money. We don't need better health. And instead, we actually know how to be abased and how to abound. In, in any and every circumstance, we have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. As Paul said, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can do all things. If we have Christ, nothing else really matters in comparison. And this is why we love to sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Or, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. We love those songs, simple songs. They just exclaim a simple truth that nothing really matters once you have Christ. And just like when you're full after Thanksgiving dinner, you don't keep asking for more. You're satisfied. And so if you have more on your plate or there's more before you, you want to give that away. You want to, there's more pie. I, I'm full, but you can, you take the pie I've made this for you, or it was given to me. You take it. You, you want, you're full, so you want others to also enjoy what you have enjoyed. And when you understand the preciousness of Christ, you, you want to give away things so that other people realize He is what is most precious to you. Because you're not found wanting anymore. And because Jesus is the most precious thing to us, like Mary understood, we want to do whatever we can to help others recognize His preciousness. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It, there is so much more joy for the Christian to share others where fullness of joy can be found than to get something else. We, you, you've known it when you've been able to share the gospel with somebody who's never heard the gospel. That is that brings far more joy, far more satisfaction than if somebody were to give you a $100 gift card. And it's not that you don't appreciate that person's love or that affection in giving you that gift. You do appreciate it. You, but you, you really appreciate the fact that they have that heart that, 
they're, they're a giving person more than you actually appreciate the gift. Because what you care about is people being satisfied and sharing their satisfaction more than you care about getting. And it just, just comes to mind, it's not in my notes, but again, this is why Timothy and the other, sorry, Paul to Timothy and, and the other apostles written, beware especially of religious leaders and their love of money. Because if they're demonstrating a love for money, that's their God. You cannot serve both God and mammon. If what you're seeking is money, like Judas did, you're not satisfied in Christ. And you're not seeking others to be satisfied in Christ. When I was uh, 10, my most precious possession was probably my uh, collection of baseball cards. They weren't old like Horace Wagner cards or anything like that. They were just 1980s Don Russ or something. But to me, they were valuable. And I, I would get out my little magazine that would you know, note how valuable they were, 10 cents, 15 cents. And I would actually accumulate. I think at one point they were worth $20. But I looked every single card up and that was how I spent my time. But when my boys, who are now into baseball, um, started collecting cards, it was nothing for me to just give all those cards to them. Because I would so much rather show my boys how valuable they are to me in comparison to those cards than hold on to those cards. It was a joy to me to give them their cards and to see their light, faces light up because I care more about my boys. I love my boys infinitely more than a bunch of baseball cards. And the cards haven't diminished in value. If anything, they've increased maybe 10 more cents each because it's been a long time. I'm getting old. But they've diminished in value to my heart. And likewise, Mary demonstrated to all in attendance how precious Jesus was to her in comparison to one of the most valuable possessions she owned. And Jesus realizes this. And that's why he rebukes the disciples and he commends her. Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed. It's the word kalas, a beautiful deed to me. She has done what she could. Verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. See, the disciples were concerned about the loss of money. But this woman was concerned about the loss of Christ. That's why she broke this preparation for the burial. It just shows the totally different places their hearts are at. The first thing the disciples thought about is loss of money. And the, and the woman, she's, I'm going to lose my Lord. The disciples condemn Mary, but Jesus commends her. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And that's why this passage is here, to memorialize her act. And isn't it interesting that she is doing the greatest thing she could. She's expending her greatest effort to show honor to Christ. And he turns it around and honors her. That is how our Lord works. When we think 
that we're, we're doing everything we can to honor him. And when we are, Jesus says, I will honor you a hundredfold for such acts. And he does. So as we give, as we sacrifice, as we lose, as we suffer for the sake of Christ, just remember, that's not lost on the Lord. He sees it all. Whether it's two mites or an alabaster jar of pure nard. So he honors her, but because she gets what the disciples don't get. And he, as he memorializes her act to teach us what really matters. He shows us what really matters. So, you want to know what God wants? With, as you think about your life, what does God want from me? What, what really matters? What is, it that, what is it that God values? A heart that is unequivocally sold out in devotion to Him. There is nothing more precious than a heart that is unequivocally sold out for God. To love Him with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the strength. See, again, Mary didn't simply tell people Jesus was precious to her. She showed it. And, and realized it cost her grief. She respected and loved. As she's pouring out her heart in love, the very People that she would have expected to understand condemn her, ridicule her, mock her, scoff. They're angry at her. What a waste, they say. She gained nothing from this act except the one thing that mattered. Our Lord's commendation. Which pales in comparison to any loss. And what a contrast with Judas. After Jesus defended Mary, despite her waste of money, Jesus turned on, sorry, Judas turned on Jesus. He thought, well, since Jesus doesn't value money, I will no longer value Jesus. See, whereas the, the religious leaders, they saw uh, Jesus as a threat, and Mary saw Jesus as her treasure, Judas sees him as trash. Something to be used, and then when finished, thrown away like an old shoe. Since Jesus wasn't going to give him what he wanted, Judas was going to get out of Jesus whatever he could, and so he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. See, Judas betrayed Jesus because he thought just a little bit more money would satisfy. He listened to the lie of sin. Just a little bit more. And I'll be satisfied. And he got what he wanted. But the effect of getting what he wanted did not pay out what, the way he thought it would. In the way he imagined. In Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. 
That is the height of despair. See, when Judas chose to betray Christ, though, nothing changed. Nothing had changed. Judas had always loved money. Um, in fact, when he first started following Christ, he probably did so because he thaw, saw Christ as a means to an end. If this guy is going to be the leader of a revolution, if he's going to be the future king, I want to be on the inside track. I want to, I want to gain from this. See, nothing changed in Judas's heart once Mary broke that alabaster jar, except that his heart was exposed. Nothing changed, it was just exposed. When what he saw, when what he loved was wasted. And sometimes I think all we really need in our life is just our hearts exposed. And one of the best ways to expose our hearts is just conflict, tension, stress. When trials come, or when things don't go our way, or when we see things wasted, people do things in a way differently than we think they should. When our routines are shaken up, conflict is one of the best ways to expose what's really going on in our heart. And as I try to pray and wrestle through everything that's happened over the last three or four months with COVID-19, I don't, I don't have a lot of answers, but I do. I have been praying and I do believe one of God's purposes is just to, to shine a light in our hearts. This is where your heart really is. For better or for worse. It's, it, it exposes how much or how little we, we treasure our freedoms or our comforts. Our friends and family. I think the, the outbreak is Expose how much or how little we value our health. How much or how little we value the church. I'm currently involved in uh, a biography of George Washington. And George Washington's uh, main adversary in the Revolutionary War was a man by the name of General William Howe. And it was common knowledge during the war that General Howe had taken a mistress for himself in the States. Uh, a Elizabeth Loring, who is the wife of Joshua Loring. The way this came about is General Howe offered Joshua Loring a lucrative position. And in exchange, Joshua Loring would turn a blind eye to General Howe's escapades with his wife. See, Joshua Loring cared more about money and position than he did about his marriage. And he probably always did. All it took was General Howe to show up to expose where his heart really was. And it's sick. And I imagine that most Christians in America fancy themselves as dedicated followers of Christ. And it's not until conflict that our hearts are truly exposed. I say that because I think one of the greatest faults we have in our American culture is where we're culture is saturated by entertainment. We, it's very easy to imagine ourselves doing great things or uh, reading about people doing great things and putting ourselves in their shoes, watching a movie about a superhero and think, if I was that superhero, I'd do the same thing and have the same success. Not that we actually think that way, but that's where our, subtly our mind goes. And I think as, as Christians, too, we can imagine ourselves doing great things for God, because we read about people who did. We can read about 
Gladys Aylward and John Payton and Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and admire their sacrifices for Christ while sitting on a patio drinking iced tea. We're content merely to imagine ourselves being as faithful as they were. And so I think we must ask, how does your life speak to the precious value of Jesus? How does your life speak to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? The Apostle Paul gave up everything. C.T. Studd gave up a promising career as a professional athlete. Henry Martin and Amy Carmichael gave up the prospects of marriage. Eric Little gave up an international fame as an Olympic athlete to serve Christ in China. William Borden gave up his inheritance, his immense wealth, in order to serve Christ in the East. William Tyndale gave up England and eventually his life so that he might translate the Bible into English. John Bunyan gave up 12 years of freedom because he wouldn't stop preaching. Marie Durant gave up 50 years of freedom. Lived in a room this size, a size, a cell that was this size, a room this size, because she wouldn't renounce her Protestant faith. And they didn't do these things to, to just make a point. They didn't do these things to make Jesus precious to them. They did those things because he already was precious to them. As, as David Livingstone and, and Hudson Taylor both said, I never made a sacrifice. Of course they made sacrifices. Their whole life was sacrifice. But it wasn't a sacrifice because they had Christ. Just like when I gave up my cards. That was no sacrifice in that. It was a joy. If Jesus isn't precious to you, don't think that making some great sacrifice is going to make him precious to you. That would be the wrong way to apply this message. That's not the point here. The point isn't everybody here should just go make some great sacrifice. Give up a year's worth of wages for Jesus. And then you'll know you're good. That is not the point. The point is, do you value Christ? Not will you do something, but do you? How precious is Jesus to you? And you know how you know? How are you living now? How are you living now? Again, the point of the text is not sacrifice your treasure for Jesus, but is Jesus your treasure? Many people charge off into the mission field trying to prove something with their sacrifices. But because it was an attempt just to prove something to their friends or family, or maybe to themselves, maybe to God, what, what actually gets exposed when they get out there is that they really didn't have the heart. They were doing it to gain reputation. And when their hearts are exposed, they just leave a wake of destruction in their path. And I say this because I know many missionaries who grieve over the wake of destruction that the majority of missionaries have caused overseas because they're trying to do something great for Jesus and they have no spiritual maturity, just impudent boldness. 
which you want to commend people for the heart to do something great. But again, that's not the point. The point is, is Jesus great? Because if he's not precious to you now, if you're not already making these sacrifices, making a greater sacrifice isn't going to add to anything. See, understand how you're currently living shows how precious he is to you. Again, we don't want to be like Peter, who brandishes a sword and waves it around over the high priest's ear, saying, if I, if, even if everybody else denies you, I will never deny you, Lord. And then, hours later, he cowers before a servant girl in the garden. We don't want to be like Peter. Recognize it wasn't Mary's act that made Jesus precious. He was already precious. Love, again, it's an overflow of the heart. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love came first, then came the giving. We give because we love. Not the reverse. So it's worth asking How did Jesus become so precious to Mary and the disciples never saw what she saw? How was it that she got it? Again, remember, this is the very same Mary who was rebuked by her sister, Martha. And remember what Jesus said? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, Mary had embraced the one thing that was necessary. Communion with God. She just wanted to be with her Lord. If you are not drawn to the sweetness of communion with God, in prayer, and in the Word, if He is not your greatest joy now, all the sacrifices we could make are just mere show. They're, they're really for the, to impress others. Mary did what she could because she loved being with Christ. She knew what the psalmist knew. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How many people go to church because they long to show how much they treasure Jesus? They can't wait to be in the assembly of God's people to sing and to to, to give and to serve because they are so satisfied. They just can't wait to show how much they love Christ because the assembly is the best place to show it. And we can show it in our closets in prayer. We can show it in our family. But when we're with God's people... That is the greatest place to show how much we love it. How many people long for that opportunity and see, see church not as a chance just to meet friends, not as just a chance to sing a song or hear a, a, an inspirational speech, but a chance to show their, the preciousness of Christ to them. In contrast, how many people were grieved by their inability not to be able to do that during this outbreak? Who would say with the psalmist, a day in your courts are better than a thousand elsewhere? 
Again, Mark has deliberately structured this account to contrast Mary's value with Judas and with the religious leaders. See, what this event exposed is that Judas and the religious leaders really had the same God. It was the God of this world. That the religious leaders supposedly loved God. They were experts in the law. They'd given their lives, their careers, to show how much they loved God, tell people about God. That's what they were known for is God lovers. But the God they really loved was the God of this world. Judas appeared to follow Christ. Both appeared devoted. But in truth, they just loved this world and its allurements. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's why John warns us against those things. Do not love the world. Don't be deceived. You can't love the world and love God. You either hate the one and love the other, or love the one and hate the other. As Jesus said, Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve God and money. No, no man can serve two masters. And Mary showed who was the master of her life. By using what the world thought precious and incredibly valuable as an ornament for her Lord. As just an ornament. Judas showed that money was the master of his life by betraying Jesus. And, and consider that no memorial is given to Judas. And perish the thought. There's, there is no, I mean, unless it's just blasphemous, I imagine. There's no memorial given to Judas for his decision. I mean, Judas himself responded to his own action by hanging himself. But we're given this text as a memorial to Mary's sacrifice. And consider, too, that God rarely gives memorials to people. I mean, even in the Old Testament, there's no memorial given to kings or to prophets or to high priests. Moses didn't get a memorial. Elijah didn't get a memorial. John the Baptist didn't get a memorial. See, memorials in Scripture are established to remind people of His mighty acts, not other people's mighty acts. Let that sink in. All the memorials in Scripture that I can think of are all about remember, remember what God did in His power. And then Jesus says, sets a, a chunk of Scripture aside to say, this is done in memorial of her. All those men didn't get a memorial, but Mary did. Let us learn from it. Father, We thank you that you do see our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to see our hearts as well. Both for the purpose of having encouragement, but also to see how we might repent. Father, we don't want to be like Judas. Deceived. Duplicitous. Double-minded. We want to be singular in all of our affections. 
And Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to see what we need to do. That we would treasure you more. For Lord, you can't increase in your, in your value. You are more precious than anything else in this world. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us at least to see that nothing this world offers has any value comparison to you. And that we would live that way. Remind us of this truth. Convince us of this truth so that we would live according to this truth. We ask these things in your name. Amen.